Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the usual roundup of uh, posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm back in the UK after my trip to Papua New Guinea and Canberra, Australia, and I am freezing. It's cold, dark, grim, the dead of winter. Um, there's ice on the ponds in the park and it's all pretty awful. But hey, never mind, um, it'll pass. And um, um, yeah, let's get on with the blog. So the first post, uh, we had a couple of climate change ones in the aftermath of the COP27 meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh. The first one was by one of my climate go-to people, Salim al-Haq, who's one of the most persistent long-term advocates of a loss and damage fund on climate change. And so uh, the, the COP27 was his moment, finally, right? So this is what he wrote for me. For 30 years, the vulnerable developing countries led by the small island states has been demanding under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change the creation of a fund for loss and damage from impacts of human-induced climate change, but have been thwarted by the rich developed countries who refuse to even discuss it. There were some gains in COP19 with the setting up of the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage in 2013 and by having an article on loss and damage in the Paris Agreement at COP21 in 2015 but these were only talking shops with no funding attached. In my view, the turning point came with the publication of the sixth assessment report of, the, of Working Group 1 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2021. There, the scientific community for the first time provided unequivocal evidence of impacts that were attributable to global temperatures having risen over one degree centigrade due to emissions of greenhouse gases since the Industrial Revolution. This led to the developing countries demanding the setting up of the Glasgow Finance Facility for Loss and Damage at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland in November 2021. But this end was once again thwarted by the developed countries, changing the wording to setting up the Glasgow Dialogue on Finance for Loss and Damage with a three-year programme of talk but no action. Another tipping point followed in 2022 with the devastating floods in Pakistan who were incidentally the chair of the group of 77 and China, which is the group of all 134 developing countries in the UNFCCC. The devastation of the floods in Pakistan was clearly attributed by scientists as having been doubled in impacts due to climate change. And hence Pakistan claimed funding from the, developing, from the developed polluting countries by tabling an agenda item for finance for loss and damage for COP27 under the finance agenda. As every new agenda item has to be agreed by all parties, and if even one party doesn't agree the agenda item will not be adopted, we knew there would be a fight to even get L&D on the agenda. But fortunately we won, and the agenda was adopted. There then followed two weeks of intensive negotiations, first by negotiators and then by ministers, until all countries agreed a day, later, a day late to establish the fund for addressing loss and damage by COP28 in Dubai next year. The main explanation for the success in COP27 after 30 years of effort was a combination of the scientific reality of the impacts of human-induced climate change happening everywhere and the unity of the developing countries under the leadership of Pakistan as well as the support of civil society from all over the world. Now the more complicated and legitimate questions with regard to how to make it work will be addressed by the Transitional Committee that was set up in COP27. 
Here are my own views on the questions that keep arising. Who will pay? I feel that the polluters, particularly the fossil fuel companies, who are making exorbitant profits at the moment, need to share some of that money to pay the victims of their pollution. This could easily be done by every country with a fossil fuel company registered in it, levying a loss and damage tax on the profits. Who will manage the fund? There are a number of existing funds, both under the UNFCCC and beyond, that could be considered to manage a new loss and damage fund. Who will be eligible to receive the funds? In my view, any poor community that is clearly suffering extreme weather impacts that can be attributed to human-induced climate change should be eligible. The humanitarian sector has some good experience and examples that can be drawn on. What is clear already is that the world has stepped into the era of loss and damage from human-induced climate change and we need to collectively up our game to respond to the challenge. And what Salim doesn't do in that piece is blow his own trumpet, and he really should. He's been working on this. He's been to every single COP, I think. Um, and this must be, you know, a historic moment for him uh, and a sign of what, you know, just dogged campaigning can help achieve. Uh, he's right in terms of lots of different factors contributing, but you know, the work of people like Sally Hook and others should not be over overlooked either. That was you know, superb. Thank you for uh, uh, doing the guest blog, Sally. Second post was another nice moment. A former student, Christopher Liberty, got in touch and asked to post a piece about, about Africa's newest pipeline. And he called it, When Two Elephants Fight, The People Get Trampled, which is a well-known African proverb. The East African crude oil pipeline Iacop, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so I'm going to call it Iacop, will run from Kabali, Hoima district in, in Uganda's Albertine Graben, to the Chongoliane uh, Peninsula near the port of Tanga in Tanzania. Costing between three and a half and five billion, it's designed to transport crude oil over 1,500 kilometres between the two East African countries. The project's preliminary construction work is well underway and once completed, the IACOP will be the world's longest heated oil pipeline. So what are the debates? Well, on the one hand, attention is on the potential environmental repercussions of the project and calls for urgent action to prevent the effects of climate change. Omar El Mawi, the coordinator of the Stop IACOP campaign, during his submission at the COP27, notes that IACOP is a carbon bomb that will be emitting over 34 million tonnes of carbon dioxide every year for the next 20 years. On the other hand, there are political concerns regarding the European Parliament's calls to halt IACOP. The Ugandan Deputy Speaker of Parliament and Tanzania's Energy Minister, Januari Makamba, criticised the EU, each arguing that the European Union is meddling in the domestic affairs of two sovereign nations after the European Parliament's motion condemning the IACOP. Several pan-African institutions, notably the African Union Watch, warn the European Parliament against getting involved in a way that impedes Africa's development after the European Union Parliament passed a vote condemning the project. Other Afrocentric commentators cite Harjun Chang's book, Kicking Away the Ladder, which argues that Western economic powers are denying developing countries access to the same development trajectory that they took, which included industrialization facilitated by the massive extraction and consumption of fossil fuels. Whilst Western governments expect developing countries to abandon their fossil fuel projects to save the planet, 
Chang's argument captures the irony of how wealthy nations did not pursue such climate policies when they were ascending the economic ladder in the 19th century. But there's a blind spot, and this is where the African saying comes to mind, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Displaced people's voices continue to be drowned out by headlines that focus solely on macro debates about geopolitical issues and environment. More than 90% of the pipeline route travels through rural areas, and the majority of the project's affected families or individuals rely on agriculture for a living. The initial notification of the farming limits and the compensation delays have negatively affected households. Due to project land acquisition terms, affected farmers were forced to grow only seasonal crops, which significantly reduced their revenue. There have been allegations of violence, intimidation, exploitation and corruption in the route mapping and land valuation exercises, leaving communities frustrated by the lack of accountability. These unheard voices matter in defining the progress of the ACOP since they represent the majority of the communities most affected by the project. And Christopher's conclusion, the debate about the future economic and environmental implications of EACOP is necessary, but it should not ignore the ongoing injustices and human rights violations the project land acquisition, uh, the, the project land acquisition is meeting out to local communities. Third post, uh, Laura Adams got in touch. She's a Director of Monitoring, Evaluation, Research and Learning, Merle, at CSM Stand, a USAID-funded global civil society and media program. And she wanted to write a piece about behavioural science and how it can be applied to uh, build democracy, human rights and good governance. Oh, quick glug of water, I'm getting dry. When international development programmes want people to get vaccinated, the behaviour they are targeting is clear, even if the complex set of things that influence that behaviour takes time and effort to, to address. Social and behavioural change approaches have, have evolved in public health to address these sorts of complexities. But what about programmes that want people to stop spreading misinformation or to treat each other with respect? Sometimes it's difficult to even identify what behaviour to target for change. Like many of my colleagues, I've been trying to apply the insights of behavioural science to the democracy, human rights and governance sector. A number of recent publications, including David McRaney's How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion, and Damon Centola's Change, How to Make Big Things Happen, inspired me to think through a few implications of their findings for DRG, that's uh, Democracy, um, Human Rights and Governance, DRG programmes that aim to do things like promote pluralism and inclusion or expand civic and political participation. Some key concepts. The first thing to know about social change is that people are resistant to it. This idea may be surprising when we see fads and other viral phenomena sweeping the globe, but Santola shows that the things that go viral do so because they do not encounter resistance. Nor do they endure. Enduring change happens when an innovation overcomes multiple forms of resistance. Resistance to change is built into human cognition. We are both creatures of habit and ones who are attuned to social norms, the perceptions we have about how other people might perceive us. Changing behaviour is hard because it means breaking habits and putting at risk how others see us. Santella elaborates other, sorts, other sources of resistance that we should be aware of. I won't go into those for reasons of space, but they're interesting. Additionally, <clears throat> McRaney shows that changing minds is hard because humans are lazy and biased thinkers. 
We don't often reflect on our own thinking. We take the path of least resistance when deciding what to do and say. And we tend to believe new information that corresponds to our existing beliefs about ourselves and the world. Confirmation bias, as it's known. Other research shows that people are indeed receptive to updating their beliefs when presented with new facts, but tend to revert back to their old beliefs without additional reinforcement. That's interesting. Finally, telling someone they're wrong or need to change also triggers a common psychological response called reactance. That stubborn feeling you get when someone tells you what to do. Boy, now I've got a word for how I behave when someone tells me what to do. Reactance. I hate it and I respond quite out of proportion to people doing it to me. Now I realise that it's a, a recognised phenomenon and I will be much happier about it. McGrady shows that avoiding reactants and changing minds is possible, but it requires one-on-one -on -one empathetic listening techniques rather than the mass-mediated campaigns typical of many DRG programmes. So what are the implications of this research for designing programmes on uh, democracy, rights and governance? The unavoidable but challenging conclusion I drew from this research is that social change interventions should target networks, not individuals. This isn't the way that most of us design our interventions in the DRG sector. However, the means by which social change happens, social proof, collective excitement, feelings of solidarity and norms, are all phenomena that spread through networks. The most striking point for me from Santella's book is that there is a tipping point for change that tends to be around 25% of a network. In other words, when a quarter of your friends adopt a change, you're likely to adopt it too. This tipping point was found in numerous studies and points to an important aspect of measurement in development work. If we know what proportion of a given network has adopted the change we are promoting, we can more accurately predict how much more we need to do to make a widespread change. In other words, hovering around a 20% adoption level for years does not necessarily mean that you're stuck. It may mean that you need to make a push for that additional 5% of the network and the rest will follow. Another implication is that when development programs use influencers to spread ideas, the ideas should be simple things that do not encounter resistance. Spreading an uncontroversial idea like voter registration through social pressure or a highly centralized influencer network is effective at increasing voting behavior. But interventions driving more challenging behavior changes, such as curtailing corruption, would benefit from thinking through questions of how to address resistance. Santola also points out that Global North organizations advocating for a change may be less credible to organizations in the Global South and may engender reactants, increasingly, I think. To overcome this kind of resistance, South-South network building and exchange is likely to be more effective. The second challenging conclusion I reached is that meaningful change is often incremental and depends on interpersonal interactions. McRaney shows that one-on-one -on -one conversations are effective at achieving small but lasting changes in attitudes and beliefs. However, one-on-one -on -one conversations are difficult to scale, making it a challenge to see how to apply these findings in development work. My hunch is that if we combine McCraney's persuasion techniques with Centola's insights about the power of, power of networks, it may take just a few targeted conversations with a particular network to trigger a cascade effect across the network. For example, in an intervention designed to increase access to government services for a stigmatised group, an effective strategy might be to do deep canvassing with, say, 25 to 30% of the service providers in the network. If other network members interact with them enough, they are likely to see each other's changed attitudes as social proof that people like them don't discriminate. 
and the whole network might adopt a more inclusive approach. Designing interventions for networks would require a radical change in how implementers in the DRG sector design our programmes, but it may be the key. Very thought-provoking, quite techie, as a lot, quite a few of the blogs this week, to be honest, but very interesting once you get down into the detail. Final post <clears throat> was about the clean energy transition, and it's by Dante Dallabajan in the Philippines and Ruth Main in Oxford. And together with a massive team, they've just produced a new Oxfam research report and Dante and Ruth introduced it. As acknowledged at the recent COP27, the world urgently needs to transition to clean energy to prevent the climate crisis intensifying. Oxfam's new research, and there's a link to the paper, highlights how the sheer scale of transition required and the many social and economic benefits of clean energy also offer humanity an unprecedented opportunity to simultaneously create a fairer as well as greener future. To seize and realise this opportunity, the transition needs to be undertaken with justice and communities' rights at its core. Yet, Oxfam Research, published yesterday, suggests that marginalised communities are threat threatened by a double jeopardy. Not only are they often more affected by the climate crisis due to their economic and social vulnerabilities, but also in too many cases, they bear most of the costs and fewer of the benefits of the energy transition. Such injustice not only entrenches existing and historic injustices and inequalities, but also breeds resistance that slows the transition and brings us faster to a climate precipice. The responsibility for reducing emissions lies primarily with wealthy countries, which grew rich on fossil fuels, and which are responsible for an estimated 92% of all excess historical emissions. But the energy transition also has important applications, implications sorry, for communities in lower income, lower emitting countries. Oxfam new research finds signs of clean energy benefits emerging in the surveyed countries. Green jobs, protection against volatile fuel bills, strengthened energy security. It also identifies examples of clean energy initiatives that share ownership and benefits with communities, including helping improve access to affordable and reliable electricity for lighting, cooking and domestic labour-saving appliances. And there's lots of examples in the paper and some in the blog. Yet it also identifies a range of injustices, a lack of promised external finance and support from healthy, from wealthy, sorry, high-emitting countries is constraining the ability of lower-income countries to undertake that energy transition. So how can we ensure the transition to clean energy is truly just? And the paper identifies four principles and associated rights needed to ensure a fast, but also economically and socially just transition. And I'll just list those four. Recognition-based justice requires that the rights and concerns of and injustices experienced by affected marginalised economic and social groups are recognised and addressed. Procedural justice requires that affected people have a meaningful say in the design and implementation of transition policies and projects, including the right to free, prior and informed consent and to organise and to protest, among others. Distributional justice requires a fair distribution of the responsibilities, costs and benefits of climate and energy action across different economic and social groups and ensures protection of the right to life, an adequate standard of living, health and access to land, among others. Remedial justice requires that people are fairly compensated for any harm resulting from energy projects or for loss and damage from climate change. Energy is vital for human flourishing and development. We urgently need to create 
a new clean, new, clean and more efficient energy system to mitigate the climate crisis. But whether the transition is both fast and fair will depend on whether all of us, governments, companies and civil society, puts justice and rights at the heart of every carbon reduction and energy transition initiative. So that's that for this week. I think that's all, they all hang together quite nicely uh, in terms of uh, the kinds of changes we need on climate and how to bring about those changes. So uh, it wasn't in my intention, but uh, a, an unusually coherent set of posts this week. Have a great weekend. If you're in the North Northern Hemisphere, stay warm, especially if you're in Britain with our terribly insulated houses. And I'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.